Chapter 5 of An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense by Thomas Reed. Chapter 5. Of Touch. Section 1. Of Heat and Cold. The senses which we have hitherto considered are very simple and uniform, each of them exhibiting only one kind of sensation, and thereby indicating only one quality of bodies. By the ear we perceive sounds and nothing else, by the palate tastes, and by the nose odors. These qualities are all likewise of one order, being all secondary qualities. Whereas by touch we perceive not one quality only, but many, and those of very different kinds. The chief of them are heat and cold, hardness and softness, roughness and smoothness, figure, solidity, motion, and extension. We shall consider these in order. As to heat and cold, it will easily be allowed that they are secondary qualities of the same order with smell, taste, and sound. And therefore what hath been already said of smell is easily applicable to them. That is, that the words heat and cold have each of them two significations. They sometimes signify certain sensations of the mind, which can have no existence when they are not felt, nor can exist anywhere but in a mind or sentient being but more frequently they signify equality of bodies, which, by the laws of nature, occasions the sensations of heat and cold in us. Equality which, though connected by custom so closely with the sensation, that we cannot without difficulty separate them, yet hath not the least resemblance to it, and may continue to exist when there is no sensation at all. The sensations of heat and cold are perfectly known, for they neither are nor can be anything else than what we feel them to be. But the qualities in bodies which we call heat and cold are unknown. They are only conceived by us as unknown causes or occasions of the sensations to which we give the same names. But though common sense says nothing of the nature of these qualities, it plainly dictates the existence of them, and to deny that there can be heat and cold when they are not felt is an absurdity too gross to merit confutation. For what could be more absurd than to say that the thermometer cannot rise or fall unless some person be present, or that the coast of Guinea would be as cold as Nova Zembla if it had no inhabitants? It is the business of philosophers to investigate by proper experiments and induction what heat and cold are in bodies, and whether they make heat a particular element diffused through nature, and accumulated in the heated body, or whether they make it a certain vibration of the parts of the heated body, whether they determine that heat and cold are contrary qualities, as the sensations undoubtedly are contrary, or that heat only is a quality and cold its privation. These questions are within the province of philosophy, for common sense says nothing on the one side or the other. But whatever be the nature of that quality in bodies which we call heat, we certainly know this, that it cannot in the least resemble the sensation of heat. It is no less absurd to suppose a likeness between the sensation and the quality than it would be to suppose that the pain of the gout resembles a square or a triangle. The simplest man that hath common sense does not imagine the sensation of heat, or anything that resembles that sensation, to be in the fire. He only imagines that there is something in the fire which makes him, and other sentient beings, feel heat. Yet, as the name of heat in common language more frequently and more properly signifies this unknown something in the fire than the sensation occasioned by it, he justly laughs at the philosopher, who denies that there is any heat in the fire, and thinks that he speaks contrary to common sense. Section 2 of hardness and softness. Let us next consider hardness and softness, 
by which words we always understand real properties or qualities of bodies of which we have a distinct conception. When the parts of a body adhere so firmly that it cannot easily be made to change its figure, we call it hard. When its parts are easily displaced, we call it soft. This is the notion which all mankind have of hardness and softness. They are neither sensations, nor like any sensations. They were real qualities before they were perceived by touch, and continue to be so when they are not perceived. For if any man will affirm that diamonds were not hard till they were handled, who would reason with him? There is no doubt a sensation by which we perceive a body to be hard or soft. This sensation of hardness may easily be had by pressing one's hand against the table, and attending to the feeling that ensues, setting aside, as much as possible, all thought of the table, and its qualities, or of any external thing. But it is one thing to have the sensation, and another to attend to it, and make it a distinct object of reflection. The first is very easy, the last in most cases extremely difficult. We are so accustomed to use the sensation as a sign, and to pass immediately to the hardness signified, that, as far as appears, it was never made an object of thought, either by the vulgar or by philosophers. Nor has it a name in any language. There is no sensation more distinct or more frequent, yet it is never attended to but passes through the mind instantaneously, and serves only to introduce that quality in bodies which, by a law of our constitution, it suggests. There are indeed some cases wherein it is no difficult matter to attend to the sensation occasioned by the hardness of a body, for instance, when it is so violent as to occasion considerable pain. Then nature calls upon us to attend to it and then we acknowledge that it is a mere sensation, and can only be in a sentient being. If a man runs his head with violence against a pillar, I appeal to him whether the pain he feels resembles the hardness of the stone, or if he can conceive anything like what he feels to be in an inanimate piece of matter. The attention of the mind is here entirely turned towards the painful feeling, and, to speak in the common language of mankind, he feels nothing in the stone, but feels a violent pain in his head. It is quite otherwise when he leans his head gently against the pillar, for then he will tell you that he feels nothing in his head, but feels hardness in the stone. Hath he not a sensation in this case as well as in the other? Undoubtedly he hath, but it is a sensation which nature intended only as a sign of something in the stone, and accordingly he instantly fixes his attention upon the thing signified, and cannot without great difficulty attend so much to the sensation as to be persuaded that there is any such thing distinct from the hardness it signifies. But however difficult it may be to attend to this fugitive sensation, to stop its rapid progress, and to disjoin it from the external quality of hardness, in whose shadow it is apt immediately to hide itself, this is what a philosopher by pains and practice must attain otherwise it will be impossible for him to reason justly upon this subject, or even to understand what is here advanced. For the last appeal in subjects of this nature must be to what a man feels and perceives in his own mind. It is indeed strange that a sensation which we have every time we feel a body hard, and which consequently we can command as often and continue as long as we please, a sensation as distinct and determinate as any other, should yet be so much unknown, and never to have been made an object of thought and reflection, nor to have been honoured with any name in any language, that philosophers, as well as the vulgar, should have entirely overlooked it, or confounded it with that quality of bodies which we call hardness, to which it hath not the least similitude. May we not conclude that the knowledge of the human faculties is but in its infancy? That we have not yet learned to attend to those operations of the mind of which we are conscious every hour of our lives? That there are habits of inattention acquired very early which are as hard to be overcome as other habits? For I think it is probable that the novelty of this sensation will procure some attention to it in children at first, 
but being in no wise interesting in itself, as soon as it becomes familiar, it is overlooked, and the attention turns solely to that which it signifies. Thus, when one is learning a language, he attends to the sounds, but when he is master of it, he attends only to the sense of what he would express. If this is the case, we must become as little children again, if we will be philosophers. We must overcome this habit of inattention, which has been gathering strength ever since we began to think, a habit the usefulness of which in common life atones for the difficulty it creates in the philosopher in discovering the first principles of the human mind. The firm cohesion of the parts of a body is no more like that sensation by which I perceive it to be hard than the vibration of a sonorous body is like the sound I hear nor can I possibly perceive, by my own reason, any connection between the one and the other. No man can give a reason why the vibration of a body might not have given the sensation of smelling, and the effluvia of bodies affected our hearing, if it had so pleased our Maker. In like manner, no man can give a reason why the sensation of smell, or taste, or sound might not have indicated hardness, as well as that sensation which by our constitution does indicate it. Indeed, no man can conceive any sensation to resemble any known quality of bodies. Nor can any man show by any good argument that all our sensations might not have been as they are, though no body nor quality of body had ever existed. Here, then, is a phenomenon of human nature which comes to be resolved. Hardness of bodies is a thing that we conceive as distinctly and believe as firmly as anything in nature. We have no way of coming at this conception and belief but by means of certain sensations of touch, to which hardness hath not the least similitude. Nor can we by any rules of reasoning infer the one from the other. The question is how we come by this conception and belief. First, as to the conception. Shall we call it an idea of sensation or of reflection? The last will not be affirmed, and as little can the first, unless we call that an idea of sensation, which hath no resemblance to any sensation. So that the origin of this idea of hardness, one of the most common and most distinct we have, is not to be found in all our system of the mind, not even in those which have so copiously endeavoured to deduce all our notions from sensations and reflection. But secondly, supposing we have got the conception of hardness, how come we by the belief of it? Is it self-evident, from comparing the ideas, that such a sensation could not be felt unless such a quality of bodies existed? No. Can it be proved by probable or certain arguments? No, it cannot. Have we got this belief, then, by tradition, by education, or by experience? No, it is not got in any of these ways. Shall we then throw off this belief as having no foundation in reason? Alas, it is not in our power. It triumphs over reason, and laughs at all the arguments of philosophers. Even the author of the Treatise of Human Nature, though he saw no reason for this belief, but many against it, could hardly conquer it in his speculative and solitary moments. At other times he fairly yielded to it, and confesses that he found himself under a necessity to do so. What shall we say, then, of this conception, and this belief, which are so unaccountable and untractable? I see nothing left but to conclude that by an original principle of our constitution, a certain sensation of touch both suggests to the mind the conception of hardness, and creates the belief of it, or, in other words, that the sensation is a natural sign of hardness, and this I shall endeavor more fully to explain. Section 3 of Natural Signs As in artificial signs, there is often neither similitude between the sign and the thing signified, nor any connection that arises necessarily from the nature of the things, so it is also in natural signs. The word gold has no similitude to the substance signified by it, nor is it in its own nature more fit to signify this than any other substance. Yet by habit and custom it suggests this and no other. In like manner a sensation of touch suggests hardness, 
although it hath neither similitude to hardness, nor, as far as we can perceive, any necessary connection with it. The difference betwixt these two signs lies only in this, that in the first the suggestion is the effect of habit and custom, in the second it is not the effect of habit, but of the original constitution of our minds. It appears evident from what hath been said on the subject of language, that there are natural signs, as well as artificial, and particularly that the thoughts, purposes, and dispositions of the mind have their natural signs in the features of the face, the modulation of the voice, and the motion and attitude of the body, that without a natural knowledge of the connection between these signs and the things signified by them, language could never have been invented and established among men, and that the fine arts are all founded upon this connection, which we may call the natural language of mankind. It is now proper to observe that there are different orders of natural signs, and to point out the different classes into which they may be distinguished, that we may more distinctly conceive the relation between our sensations and the things they suggest, and what we mean by calling sensations signs of external things. The first class of natural signs comprehends those whose connection with the things signified is established by nature, but discovered only by experience. The whole of genuine philosophy consists in discovering such connections, and reducing them to general rules. The great Lord Vurolam had a perfect comprehension of this, when he called it an interpretation of nature. No man ever more distinctly understood, or happily expressed, the nature and foundation of the philosophic art. What is all we know of mechanics, astronomy, and optics? but connections established by nature and discovered by experience or observation, and consequences deduced from them. All the knowledge we have in agriculture, gardening, chemistry, and medicine is built upon the same foundation. And if ever our philosophy concerning the human mind is carried so far as to deserve the name of science, which ought never to be despaired of, it must be by observing facts, reducing them to general rules, and drawing just conclusions from them. What we commonly call natural causes might with more propriety be called natural signs, and what we call effects the things signified. The causes have no proper efficiency or causality as far as we know, and all we can certainly affirm is that nature hath established a constant conjunction between them and the things called their effects, and hath given to mankind a disposition to observe these connections, to confide in their continuance, and to make use of them for the improvement of our knowledge and increase of our power. The second class is that wherein the connection between the sign and things signified is not only established by nature, but discovered to us by a natural principle, without reasoning or experience. Of this kind are the natural signs of human thoughts, purposes, and desires, which have been already mentioned as the natural language of mankind. An infant may be put into a fright by an angry countenance, and soothed again by smiles and blandishments. A child that has a good musical ear may be put to sleep or to dance, may be made merry or sorrowful by the modulation of musical sounds. The principles of all the fine arts, and of what we call a fine taste, may be resolved into connections of this kind. A fine taste may be improved by reasoning and experience, but if the first principles of it were not planted in our minds by nature, it could never be acquired. Nay, we have already made it appear that a great part of this knowledge which we have by nature is lost by the disuse of natural signs, and the substitution of artificial ones in their place. A third class of natural signs comprehends those which, though we never before had any notion or conception of the things signified, do suggest it, or conjure it up, as it were, by a natural kind of magic, and at once give us a conception and create a belief of it. I showed formerly that our sensations suggest to us a sentient being, or mind to which they belong, a being which hath a permanent existence, although the sensations are transient and of short duration, 
a being which is still the same while its sensations and other operations are varied ten thousand ways a being which hath the same relation to all that infinite variety of thoughts purposes actions affections enjoyments and sufferings which we are conscious of or can remember the conception of a mind is neither an idea of sensation nor of reflection for it is neither like any of our sensations nor like anything we are conscious of the first conception of it as well as the belief of it and of the common relation it bears to all that we are conscious of or remember is suggested to every thinking being we do not know how the notion of hardness in bodies as well as the belief of it are got in a similar manner being by an original principle of our nature annexed to that sensation which we have when we feel a hard body and so naturally and necessarily does the sensation convey the notion and belief of hardness that hitherto they have been confounded by the most acute inquirers into the principles of human nature although they appear upon accurate reflection not only to be different things but as unlike as pain is to the point of a sword it may be observed that as the first class of natural signs i have mentioned is the foundation of true philosophy and the second the foundation of the fine arts or of taste so the last is the foundation of common sense a part of human nature which hath never been explained i take it for granted that the notion of hardness and the belief of it is first got by means of that particular sensation which as far back as we can remember does invariably suggest it and that if we had never had such a feeling we should never have had any notion of hardness i think it is evident that we cannot by reasoning from our sensations collect the existence of bodies at all far less any of their qualities this hath been proved by unanswerable arguments by the bishop of cloyne and by the author of the treatise of human nature it appears as evident that this connection between our sensations and the conception and belief of external existences cannot be produced by habit experience education or any principle of human nature that hath been admitted by philosophers at the same time it is a fact that such sensations are invariably connected with the conception and belief of external existences hence by all rules of just reasoning we must conclude that this connection is the effect of our constitution and ought to be considered as an original principle of human nature till we find some more general principle into which it may be resolved section four of hardness and other primary qualities further i observe that hardness is a quality of which we have as clear and distinct a conception as of anything whatsoever the cohesion of the parts of a body with more or less force is perfectly understood though its cause is not we know what it is as well as how it affects the touch it is therefore a quality of quite different order from those secondary qualities we have already taken notice of whereof we know no more naturally than that they are adapted to raise certain sensations in us if hardness were a quality of the same kind it would be a proper inquiry for philosophers what hardness in bodies is and we should have had various hypotheses about it as well as about color and heat but it is evident that any such hypothesis would be ridiculous if any man should say that hardness in bodies is a certain vibration of their parts or that it is a certain effluvia emitted by them which affect our touch in the manner we feel such hypotheses would shock common sense because we all know that if the parts of a body adhere strongly it is hard although it should neither emit effluvia nor vibrate yet at the same time no man can say but the effluvia or the vibration of the parts of a body might have affected our touch in the same manner that hardness now does if it had so pleased the author of our nature and if either of these hypotheses is applied to explain a secondary quality such as smell or taste or sound or color or heat there appears no manifest absurdity in the supposition the distinction betwixt primary and secondary qualities hath had several revolutions democritus and epicurus and their followers maintained it 
Aristotle and the Peripatetics abolished it. Descartes, Malebranche, and Locke revived it, and were thought to have put it in a very clear light. But Bishop Berkeley again discarded this distinction by such proofs as must be convincing to those that hold the received doctrine of ideas. Yet, after all, there appears to be a real foundation for it in the principles of our nature. What hath been said of hardness is so easily applicable not only to its opposite, softness, but likewise to roughness and smoothness, to figure and motion, that we may be excused from making the application which would only be a repetition of what hath been said. All these, by means of certain corresponding sensations of touch, are presented to the mind as real external qualities. The conception and the belief of them are invariably connected with the corresponding sensations, by an original principle of human nature. Their sensations have no name in any language. They have not only been overlooked by the vulgar, but by philosophers. Or, if they have been at all taken notice of, they have been confounded with the external qualities which they suggest. Section 5. Of Extension. It is further to be observed that hardness and softness, roughness and smoothness, figure and motion, do all suppose extension, and cannot be conceived without it. Yet I think it must, on the other hand, be allowed that if we had ever felt anything hard or soft, rough or smooth, figured or moved, we should never have had a conception of extension. So that as there is good ground to believe that the notion of extension could not be prior to that of any other primary qualities, so it is certain that it could not be posterior to the notion of any of them, being necessarily implied in all of them. Extension, therefore, seems to be a quality suggested to us by the very same sensations which suggest the other qualities above mentioned. When I grasp a ball in my hand, I perceive it at once hard, figured, and extended. The feeling is very simple, and hath not the least resemblance to any quality of body. Yet it suggests to us three primary qualities, perfectly distinct from one another, as well as from the sensation which indicates them. When I move my hand along the table, the feeling is so simple that I find it difficult to distinguish it into things of different natures. Yet it immediately suggests hardness, smoothness, extension, and motion, things of very different natures, and all of them distinctly understood as the feeling which suggests them. We are commonly told by philosophers that we get the idea of extension by feeling along the extremities of a body, as if there were no manner of difficulty in the matter. I have sought with great pains, I confess, to find out how this idea can be got by feeling, but I have sought in vain. Yet it is one of the clearest and most distinct notions we have. Nor is there anything whatsoever about which the human understanding can carry on so many long and demonstrative trains of reasoning. The notion of extension is so familiar to us from infancy, and so constantly obtruded by everything we see and feel, that we are apt to think it obvious how it comes into the mind. But upon a narrower examination, we shall find it utterly inexplicable. It is true we have feelings of touch, which every moment present extension to the mind. But how they come to do so is the question. For those feelings do no more resemble extension than they resemble justice or courage. Nor can the existence of extended things be inferred from those feelings, by any rules of reasoning, so that the feelings we have by touch can neither explain how we get the notion, nor how we come by the belief of extended things. What hath imposed upon philosophers in this matter is that the feelings of touch, which suggest primary qualities, have no names, nor are they ever reflected upon. They pass through the mind instantaneously, and serve only to introduce the notion and belief of external things, which by our constitution are connected with them. They are natural signs, and the mind immediately passes to the thing signified, without making the least reflection upon the sign, or observing that there was any such thing. Hence it hath always been taken for granted that the idea of extension, figure, and motion, 
are ideas of sensation, which enter into the mind by the sense of touch, in the same manner as the sensations of sound and smell do by the ear and nose. The sensations of touch are so connected by our constitution with the notions of extension, figure, and motion, that philosophers have mistaken the one for the other, and never have been able to discern that they were not only distinct things, but altogether unlike. However, if we will reason distinctly upon this subject, we ought to give names to those feelings of touch. We must accustom ourselves to attend to them, and to reflect upon them, that we may be able to disjoin them from and to compare them with the qualities signified or suggested by them. The habit of doing this is not to be attained without pains and practice, and till a man hath acquired this habit, it will be impossible for him to think distinctly or to judge right upon this subject. Let a man press his hand against the table. He feels it hard. But what is the meaning of this? The meaning undoubtedly is that he hath a certain feeling of touch, from which he concludes, without any reasoning or comparing ideas, that there is something external, really existing, whose parts stick so firmly together that they cannot be displaced without considerable force. There is here a feeling, and a conclusion drawn from it, or some way suggested by it. In order to compare these, we must view them separately, and then consider by what tie they are connected, and wherein they resemble one another. The hardness of the table is the conclusion, the feeling is the medium by which we are led to that conclusion. Let a man attend distinctly to this medium, and to the conclusion, and he will perceive them to be as unlike as any two things in nature. The one is a sensation of the mind, which can have no existence but in a sentient being, nor can it exist one moment longer than it is felt. The other is in the table, and we conclude without any difficulty that it was in the table before it was felt, and continues after the feeling is over. The one implies no kind of extension, nor parts, nor cohesion. The other implies all these. Both indeed admit of degrees, and the feeling beyond a certain degree is a species of pain. But adamantine hardness does not imply the least pain. And as the feeling hath no similitude to hardness, so neither can our reason perceive the least tie or connection between them. Nor will the logician ever be able to show a reason why we should conclude hardness from this feeling rather than softness, or any other quality whatsoever. But in reality, all mankind are led by their constitution to conclude hardness from this feeling. The sensation of heat, and the sensation we have by pressing a hard body, are equally feelings. Nor can we by reasoning draw any conclusion from the one, but what may be drawn from the other. But by our constitution we conclude from the first an obscure or occult quality, of which we have only this relative conception, that it is something adapted to raise in us the sensation of heat. From the second we conclude a quality of which we have a clear and distinct conception, to wit the hardness of the body. Section 6. Of Extension to put this matter in another light, it may be proper to try whether from sensation alone we can collect any notion of extension, figure, motion, and space. I take it for granted that a blind man hath the same notions of extension, figure, and motion as a man that sees, that Dr. Saunderson had the same notion of a cone, a cylinder, and a sphere, and of the motions and distances of the heavenly bodies, as Sir Isaac Newton. As sight, therefore, is not necessary for our acquiring these notions, we shall leave it out altogether in our inquiry into the first origin of them, and shall suppose a blind man, by some strange distemper, to have lost all the experience and habits and notions he got by touch, nor to have the least conception of the existence, figure, dimensions, or extension, either of his own body or of any other, but to have all his knowledge of external things, to acquire anew, by means of sensation, and the power of reason, which we suppose to remain entire. We shall first suppose his body fixed immovably in one place, 
and that he can only have the feelings of touch by the application of other bodies to it. Suppose him first to be pricked with a pin. This will, no doubt, give a smart sensation. He feels pain. But what can he infer from it? Nothing, surely, with regard to the existence or figure of a pin. He can infer nothing from this species of pain, which he may not as well infer from the gout or sciatica. Common sense may lead him to think that this pain has a cause. But whether this cause is body or spirit, extended or unextended, figured or not figured, he cannot possibly, from any principles he is supposed to have, form the least conjecture. Having had formerly no notion of body or of extension, the prick of a pin can give him none. Suppose next a body not pointed but blunt is applied to his body with a force gradually increased until it bruises him. What has he got by this but another sensation, or train of sensations, from which he is able to conclude as little as from the former? A serious tumor in any inward part of the body, by pressing upon the adjacent parts, may give the same kind of sensation as the pressure of an external body, without conveying any notion but that of pain, which surely hath no resemblance to extension. Suppose, thirdly, that the body applied to him touches a larger or a lesser part of his body. Can this give him any notion of its extension or dimensions? To me it seems impossible that it should, unless he had some previous notion of the dimensions and figure of his own body, to serve him as a measure. When my two hands touch the extremities of a body, if I know them to be a foot asunder, I easily collect that the body is a foot long, and if I know them to be five feet asunder, that it is five feet long. But if I know not what the distance of my hands is, I cannot know the length of the object they grasp. And if I have no previous notion of hands at all, or of distance between them, I can never get that notion by their being touched. Suppose again that a body is drawn along his hands or face while they are at rest. Can this give him any notion of space or motion? It no doubt gives a new feeling, but how it should convey a notion of space or motion to one who had none before I cannot conceive. The blood moves along the arteries and veins, and this motion, when violent, is felt. But I imagine no man by this feeling could get the conception of space or motion if he had it not before. Such a motion may give a certain succession of feelings, as the colic may do, but no feelings, nor any combination of feelings, can ever resemble space or motion. Let us next suppose that he makes some instinctive effort to move his head, or his hand, but that no motion follows, either on account of external resistance or of palsy. Can this effort convey the notion of space and motion to one who has never had it before? Surely it cannot. Last of all, let us suppose that he moves a limb by instinct, without having had any previous notion of space or motion. He has here a new sensation, which accompanies the flexure of the joints, and the swelling of muscles, but how this sensation can convey into his mind the idea of space and motion is still altogether mysterious and unintelligible. The motions of the heart and lungs are all performed by the contraction of muscles, yet give no conception of space or motion. An embryo in the womb has many such motions, and probably the feelings that accompany them, without any idea of space or motion. Upon the whole, it appears that our philosophers have imposed upon themselves, and upon us, in pretending to deduce from sensation the first origin of our notions of external existences, of space, motion, and extension, and all the primary qualities of body, that is, the qualities whereof we have the most clear and distinct conception. These qualities do not at all tally with any system of the human faculties that hath been advanced. They have no resemblance to any sensation, or to any operation of our minds, and therefore they cannot be ideas either of sensation or of reflection. The very conception of them is irreconcilable to the principles of all our philosophic systems of understanding. The belief of them is no less so. Section 8. Of the Existence of a Material World 
It is beyond our power to say when or in what order we came by our notion of these qualities. When we trace the operation of our minds as far back as memory and reflection can carry us, we find them already in possession of our imagination and belief, and quite familiar to the mind. But how they came first into its acquaintance, or what has given them so strong a hold of our belief, and what regard they deserve, are no doubt very important questions in the philosophy of human nature. Shall we, with the Bishop of Cloyne, serve them with a quo warranto, and have them tried at the bar of philosophy, upon the statute of the ideal system? Indeed, in this trial they seem to have come off very pitifully. For, although they had very able counsel, learned in the law, viz. Descartes, Malebranche, and Locke, who said everything they could for their clients, the Bishop of Cloyne, believing them to be aiders and abettors of heresy and schism, prosecuted them with great vigor, fully answered all that had been pleaded in their defense, and silenced their ablest advocates, who seem for half a century past to decline the argument and to trust the favor of the jury rather than to the strength of their pleadings. Thus the wisdom of philosophy is set in opposition to the common sense of mankind. The first pretends to demonstrate a priori that there can be no such thing as a material world, that sun, moon, stars, and earth, vegetable and animal bodies, are, and can be nothing else but sensations in the memory and imagination, that like pain and joy they can have no existence when they are not thought of. The last can conceive no otherwise of this opinion than as a kind of metaphysical lunacy, and concludes that too much learning is apt to make men mad, and that the man who seriously entertains this belief, though in other respects he may be a very good man, as a man may be who believes that he is made of glass, Yet surely he hath a soft place in his understanding, and hath been hurt by much thinking. This opposition betwixt philosophy and common sense is apt to have a very unhappy influence upon the philosopher himself. He sees human nature in an odd, unamiable, and mortifying light. He considers himself and the rest of his species as born under a necessity of believing ten thousand absurdities and contradictions, and endowed with such a pittance of reason as is just sufficient to make this unhappy discovery. And this is all the fruit of his profound speculations. Such notions of human nature tend to slacken every nerve of the soul, to put every noble purpose and sentiment out of countenance, and spread a melancholy gloom over the whole face of things. If this is wisdom, let me be deluded with the vulgar. I find something within me that recoils against it, and inspires more reverent sentiments of the human kind, and of the universal administration. Common sense and reason have both one author, that almighty author, in all whose other works we observe a consistency, uniformity, and beauty which charm and delight the understanding. There must therefore be some order and consistency in the human faculties, as well as in other parts of his workmanship. A man that thinks reverently of his own kind, and esteems true wisdom and philosophy, will not be found, nay, will be very suspicious of such strange and paradoxical opinions. If they are false, they disgrace philosophy, and if they are true, they degrade the human species and make us justly ashamed of our frame. To what purpose is it for philosophy to decide against common sense in this way or any other matter? The belief of a material world is older and of more authority than any principles of philosophy. It declines the tribunal of reason, and laughs at all the artillery of the logician. It retains its sovereign authority, in spite of all the edicts of philosophy, and reason itself must stoop to its orders. Even those philosophers who have disowned the authority of our notions of an external material world confess that they find themselves under a necessity of submitting to their power. Methinks, therefore, it were better to make a virtue of necessity, and since we cannot get rid of the vulgar notions and belief of an external world, to reconcile our reason to it as well as we can. For if reason should stomach and fret ever so much at this yoke, she cannot throw it off, 
if she will not be the servant of common sense, she must be her slave. In order, therefore, to reconcile reason to common sense in this matter, I beg leave to offer the consideration of philosophers these two observations. First, that in all this debate about the existence of a material world, it hath been taken for granted, on both sides, that this same material world, if any such there be, must be the express image of our sensations, that we can have no conception of any material thing which is not like some sensation in our minds, and particularly that the sensations of touch are images of extension, hardness, figure, and motion. Every argument brought against the existence of a material world, either by the Bishop of Cloyne, or by the author of the Treatise of Human Nature, supposeth this. If this is true, their arguments are conclusive and unanswerable. But on the other hand, if it is not true, there is no shadow of argument left. Have these philosophers, then, given any solid proof of this hypothesis, upon which the whole weight of so strange a system rests? No. They have not so much as attempted to do it. But because ancient and modern philosophers have agreed in this opinion, they have taken it for granted. But let us become philosophers. Lay aside authority. We need not surely consult Aristotle or Locke to know whether pain be like the point of a sword. I have as clear a concept of extension, hardness, and motion as I have of the point of a sword, and with some pains and practice I can form as clear a notion of the other sensations of touch as I have of pain. When I do so, and compare them together, it appears to me clear as daylight that the former are not of kin to the latter, nor resemble them in any one feature. They are as unlike, yea, as certainly and manifestly unlike, as pain is to the point of a sword. It may be true that those sensations first introduced the material world to our acquaintance. It may be true that it seldom or never appears without their company. But for all that, they are as unlike as the passion of anger is to those features of the countenance which attend it. So that, in the sentence those philosophers have passed against the material world, there is an error personae. Their proof touches not matter, or any of its qualities, but strikes directly against an idol of their own imagination, a material world made of ideas and sensations, which never had nor can have an existence. Secondly, the very existence of our conceptions of extension, figure, and motion, since they are neither ideas of sensation nor reflection, overturns the whole ideal system by which the material world hath been tried and condemned, so that there hath been likewise in this sentence an error juris. It is a very fine and just observation of Locke that as no human art can create a single particle of matter, and the whole extent of our power over the material world consists in compounding, combining, and disjoining the matter made to our hands, so in the world of thought the materials are all made by nature, and can only be variously combined and disjoined by us, so that it is impossible for reason or prejudice, true or false philosophy, to produce one simple notion or conception, which is not the work of nature and the result of our constitution. The conception of extension, motion, and the other attributes of matter cannot be the effect of error or prejudice. It must be the work of nature. And the power or faculty by which we acquire these conceptions must be something different from any power of the human mind that hath been explained, since it is neither sensation nor reflection. This I would therefore humbly propose as an experimentum crucis, by which the ideal system must stand or fall, and it brings the matter to a short issue. Extension, figure, motion, may any one or all of them be taken for the subject of this experiment. Either there are ideas of sensation, or there are not. If any one of them can be shown to be an idea of sensation, or to have the least resemblance to any sensation, I lay my hand upon my mouth and give up all pretense to reconcile reason to common sense in this matter, 
and must suffer the ideal skepticism to triumph. But if, on the other hand, they are not ideas of sensation, nor like to any sensation, then the ideal system is a rope of sand, and all the labored arguments of the skeptical philosophy against a material world, and against the existence of everything but impressions and ideas, proceed upon a false hypothesis. If our philosophy concerning the mind be so lame with regard to the origin of our notions of the clearest, most simple, and most familiar objects of thought, and the powers from which they are derived, can we expect that it should be more perfect in the account it gives of the origin of our opinions and belief? We have seen already some instances of its imperfection in this respect, and perhaps that same nature which hath given us the power to conceive things altogether unlike to any of our sensations, or to any operation of our minds, hath likewise provided for our belief of them, by some part of our constitution hitherto not explained. Bishop Barclay hath proved beyond the possibility of reply that we cannot by reasoning infer the existence of matter from our sensations. And the author of the Treatise of Human Nature hath proved no less clearly that we cannot by reasoning infer the existence of our own or other minds from our sensations. But are we to admit nothing but can be proved by reasoning? Then we must be skeptics indeed, and believe nothing at all. The author of the Treatise of Human Nature appears to me to be but a half-skeptic. He hath not followed his principle so far as they led him, but after having with unparalleled intrepidity and success combated vulgar prejudices, when he had but one blow to strike, his courage fails him. He fairly lays down his arms and yields himself a captive to the most common of all vulgar prejudices. I mean the belief of the existence of his own impressions and ideas. I beg, therefore, to have the honor of making an addition to the skeptical system, without which I conceive it cannot hang together. I affirm that the belief of the existence of impressions and ideas is as little supported by reason as that of the existence of mind and bodies. No man ever did or could offer any reason for this belief. Descartes took it for granted that he thought and had sensations and ideas. So have all his followers done. Even the hero of skepticism hath yielded this point, I crave leave to say, weakly and imprudently. I say so because I am persuaded that there is no principle of his philosophy that obliged him to make this concession. And what is there in impressions and ideas so formidable that this all-conquering philosophy, after triumphing over every other existence, should pay homage to them? Besides, the concession is dangerous, for belief is of such a nature that if you leave any root it will spread and you may more easily pull it up altogether than say, Hitherto shalt thou go, and no further. The existence of impressions and ideas I give up to thee. But see thou pretend to nothing more. A thorough and consistent skeptic will never therefore yield this point, and while he holds it you can never oblige him to yield anything else. To such a skeptic I have nothing to say, but of the semi-skeptics I should beg leave to know why they believe the existence of their impressions and ideas. The true reason I take to be because they cannot help it, and the same reason will lead them to believe many other things. All reasoning must be from first principles, and for first principles no other reason can be given but this, that, by the constitution of our nature, we are under such a necessity of assenting to them. Such principles are parts of our constitution, no less than the power of thinking. Reason can neither make nor destroy them, nor can it do anything without them. It is like a telescope, which may help a man to see farther who hath eyes, but without eyes a telescope shows nothing at all. A mathematician cannot prove the truth of his axioms, nor can he prove anything, unless he takes them for granted. We cannot prove the existence of our minds, nor even of our thoughts and sensations. A historian or a witness can prove nothing, unless it is taken for granted that the memory and senses may be trusted. 
a natural philosopher, can prove nothing, unless it is taken for granted that the course of nature is steady and uniform. How or when I got such first principles, upon which I build all my reasoning, I know not. For I had them before I can remember. But I am sure they are parts of my constitution, and that I cannot throw them off. That our thoughts and sensations must have a subject which we call ourself, is not therefore an opinion got by reasoning, but a natural principle. That our sensations of touch indicate something external, extended, figured, hard, or soft, is not a deduction of reason, but a natural principle. The belief of it, and the very conception of it, are equally parts of our constitution. If we are deceived in it, we are deceived by him that made us, and there is no remedy. I do not mean to affirm that the sensations of touch do from the very first suggest the same notions of body and its qualities which they do not when we are grown up. Perhaps nature is frugal in this, as in her other operations. The passion of love, with all its concomitant sentiments and desires, is naturally suggested by the perception of beauty in the other sex. Yet the same perception does not suggest the tender passion till a certain period of life. A blow given to an infant raises grief and lamentation, but when he grows up it as naturally stirs resentment and prompts him to resistance. Perhaps a child in the womb, or for some short period of its existence, is merely a sentient being. The faculties by which it perceives an external world, by which it reflects on its own thoughts and existence, and relation to other things, as well as its reasoning and moral faculties, unfold themselves by degree, so that it is inspired with the various principles of common sense, as with the passions of love and resentment, when it has occasion for them. Section 8. Of the Systems of Philosophers Concerning the Senses All the systems of philosophers about our senses and their objects have split upon this rock, of not distinguishing properly sensations which can have no existence but when they are felt, from the things suggested by them. Aristotle, with as distinguishing a head as ever applied to the philosophical disquisitions, confounds these two, and makes every sensation to be the form, without the matter of the thing perceived by it. As the impression of a seal upon wax has the form of the seal, but nothing of the matter of it, so he conceived our sensations to be impressions upon the mind which bear the image, likeness, or form of the external thing perceived, without the matter of it. Color, sound, and smell, as well as extension, figure, and hardness, are, according to him, various forms of matter. Our sensations are the same forms imprinted on the mind, and perceived in its own intellect. It is evident from this that Aristotle made no distinction between primary and secondary qualities of bodies, although that distinction was made by Democritus, Epicurus, and others of the ancients. Descartes, Malebranche, and Locke revived the distinction between primary and secondary qualities, but they made the secondary qualities mere sensations, and the primary ones resemblances of our sensations. They maintained that color, sound, and heat are not anything in bodies, but sensations of the mind. At the same time, they acknowledged some particular texture or modification of the body to be the cause or occasion of those sensations but to this modification they gave no name. Whereas by the vulgar the names of color, heat, and sound are but rarely applied to the sensations, and most commonly to those unknown causes of them, as hath been already explained. The constitution of our nature leads us rather to attend to the things signified by the sensation than to the sensation itself, and to give a name to the former rather than to the latter. Thus we see that with regard to secondary qualities, these philosophers thought with the vulgar and with common sense. Their paradoxes were only an abuse of words, for when they maintain, as an important modern discovery, that there is no heat in fire, they mean no more than that the fire does not feel heat, which everyone knew before. With regard to primary qualities, these philosophers erred more grossly. 
They indeed believed the existence of those qualities, but they did not at all attend to the sensations that suggest them, which, having no names, have been as little considered as if they had no existence. They were aware that figure, extension, and hardness are perceived by means of sensations of touch, whence they rashly concluded that these sensations must be images and resemblances of figure, extension, and hardness. The received hypothesis of ideas naturally led them to this conclusion, and indeed cannot consist with any other, for according to that hypothesis, external things must be perceived by means of images of them in the mind, and what can those images of external things in the mind be but the sensations by which we perceive them? This, however, was to draw a conclusion from a hypothesis against fact. We need not have recourse to any hypothesis to know what our sensations are, or what they are like. By a proper degree of reflection and attention, we may understand them perfectly, and be as certain that they are not like any quality of body, as we can be that the toothache is not like a triangle. How a sensation should instantly make us conceive and believe the existence of an external thing altogether unlike to it, I do not pretend to know. And when I say that the one suggests the other, I mean not to explain the manner of their connection, but to express a fact which every one may be conscious of, namely, that by a law of our nature, such a conception and belief constantly and immediately follow the sensation. Bishop Berkeley gave new light to this subject by showing that the qualities of an inanimate thing, such as matter is conceived to be, cannot resemble any sensation that it is impossible to conceive anything like the sensations of our minds but the sensations of other minds. Every one that attends properly to his sensations must assent to this. Yet it had escaped all the philosophers that came before Berkeley. It had escaped even the ingenious Locke, who had so much practiced reflection on the operations of his own mind. So difficult it is to attend properly even to our own feelings, they are so accustomed to pass through the mind unobserved, and instantly to make way for that which nature intended them to signify, that it is extremely difficult to stop and survey them. And when we think we have acquired this power, perhaps the mind still fluctuates between the sensation and its associated quality, so that they mix together, and present something to the imagination that is compound of both. Thus, in a globe or cylinder, whose opposite sides are quite unlike in color, if you turn it slowly, the colors are perfectly distinguishable, and their dissimilitude is manifest. But if it is turned fast, they lose their distinction, and seem to be of one and the same color. No succession can be more quick than that of tangible qualities to the sensations with which nature has associated them. But when one has once acquired the art of making them separate and distinct objects of thought, he will then clearly perceive that the maxim of Bishop Berkeley above mentioned is self-evident, and that the features of the face are not more unlike to a passion of the mind, which they indicate, than the sensations of touch are to the primary qualities of body. But let us observe what use the bishop made of this important discovery. Why, he concludes that we can have no conception of an inanimate substance, such as matter is conceived to be, or of any of its qualities, and that there is the strongest ground to believe that there is no existence in nature but minds, sensations, and ideas. If there is any other kind of existence, it must be what we neither have nor can have any conception of. But how does this follow? Why thus? we can have no conception of anything but what resembles some sensation or idea in our minds. But the sensations and ideas in our minds can resemble nothing but the sensations and ideas in other minds. Therefore the conclusion is evident. This argument, we see, leans upon two propositions. The last of them, the ingenious author, hath indeed made evident to all that understand his reasoning, and can attend to their own sensations. But the first proposition he never attempts to prove. It is taken from the doctrine of ideas, which hath been so universally received by philosophers that it was thought to need no proof. 
We may here again observe that this acute writer argues from a hypothesis against fact, and against the common sense of mankind, that we can have no conception of anything, unless there is some impression, sensation, or idea in our minds, which resemble it, is indeed an opinion which hath been very generally received among philosophers. But it is neither self-evident, nor hath it been clearly proved, and therefore it had been more reasonable to call in question this doctrine of philosophers than to discard the material world, and by that means expose philosophy to the ridicule of all men, who will not offer up common sense as a sacrifice to metaphysics. We ought, however, to do this justice both to the Bishop of Cloyne and to the author of the Treatise of Human Nature, to acknowledge that their conclusions are justly drawn from the doctrine of ideas, which has been so universally received. On the other hand, from the character of Bishop Berkeley and of his predecessors Descartes, Locke, and Malebranc, we may venture to say that if they had seen all the consequences of this doctrine, as clearly as the author before mentioned did, they would have suspected it vehemently, and examined it more carefully than they appear to have done. The theory of ideas, like the Trojan horse, had a specious appearance, both of innocence and beauty. But if those philosophers had known that it carried in its belly death and destruction to all science and common sense, they would not have broken down their walls to give it admittance. That we have clear and distinct conceptions of extension, figure, motion, and other attributes of body which are neither sensations nor like any sensation, is a fact of which we may be as certain as that we have sensations. And after all, mankind have a fixed belief of an external material world, a belief which is neither got by reasoning nor education, and a belief which we cannot shake off, even when we seem to have strong arguments against it, and no shadow of argument for it is likewise a fact for which we have all the evidence that the nature of the thing admits. These facts are phenomena of human nature, from which we may justly argue against any hypothesis, however generally received. But to argue from a hypothesis against facts is contrary to the rules of true philosophy. End of chapter 5 Recording by Stephen Reynolds Durham Connecticut.